Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are back for another... I'm not saying it. Regular sode. <laughs> we are talking about a book and a film, and this week it is Z for Zachariah. Z for Zachariah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that we are accommodating all languages. We are very welcoming. We are very open to all people. Yeah, we're we're welcoming to people who pronounce it Zed and people who pronounce it wrong. Right. <laughs> this morning we were lying in bed and um, Groot was singing the alphabet song to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, he's like, W, X, Y, and Z. And I go, Zed. And he goes, what? <laughs> and I go, Zed. And he goes, W, X, Y, and Z. Zed? So someone at his daycare is screwing the things up for me, and I'm going to find out who. Brenna immediately takes a hit out on this poor woman <laughs> who is probably earning less than minimum wage. Yeah, I know. I know. But it's still like, Zed. It's Zed. We're in Canada. Anyway, it's fine. Listeners, this is not what the show is about. We're talking about Zed for Zachariah, which uh, I really enjoyed, actually, Joe. I was very skeptical going in, as you know. I mean, I knew that you hadn't heard of it and you were worried it was going to be scary. I was very worried it was going to be scary. I did try to prep you that it was a different kind of dystopian text before we began it, so... I know, but if you read the synopsis, it's like, there's one person left in the world and then she sees another person and then, is he safe? Like, I was... that sounds scary! Spoiler alert, folks, if you have not tracked down this, what is it, 1974 book? Yes, it is. If you have not read this 1974 book, A, it's like 200 pages. It's a really fast read. It's mm-hmm. very easy. It's a little bit tricky to find, admittedly, because it's a bit older. This book is terrifying. Yeah, it really is. It's really, really scary. <laughs> I read this a couple years ago, and I really enjoyed it. It was a five-star read for me. When I went back and read read it for the podcast, it didn't hold up quite, quite as well, but I think it's just because I knew where it was going. Yeah. I could not believe how terrified for Anne I was throughout this entire book, and it felt a little too lifelike for 2020. (laughs) This 1974 book. It's unreal. So the... The tension that, so the author's name is Robert C. O'Brien. It's a pen name uh, for Robert Leslie Conley. It's so tense. The tension is just so well done. It's like, oh, there were points where I was reading it and I realized when I gasped that I had Mm -hmm. actually been holding my breath for like pages at a time. Yeah. Which is kind of. I was going to say, if you like a grippy read, this is really, really good. And I would actually recommend, since it is only 200 pages, if you can, like, find a copy, you should pause this and go read it and then listen, because we are going to give away, like, all the tensions and, like, intense stuff. And I don't want you to miss out on it if you think you're going to read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, it's not that difficult to find if you are in a bigger city. Like, I just got this from the library and it was no problem. Oh, yeah. My library did not have it. (laughs) We're going to have to talk to your library staff. I feel like they're, they're laying down on the job a little bit. I know. Things have really changed, hey? Like, my hold list also. My hold list only has, like, 25 books on it right now. That just makes me sad. I know. I know. It's a thing. I've also started buying more books. And if listeners could see, so I record at this little tiny desk that was my grandfather's. It's like one of those fold-out writing desks. Aw. Right now, it is so covered in books 
that need to be shelved and we are out of shelves that like my laptop is on like a tiny angle to like accommodate the microphone but yeah no it's a situation but yeah I, I am totally buying more books because I didn't realize well I did but I have a very clear sense of just how much I relied on the library before because I'm definitely buying too many books now Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll have to we'll have to think about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. But uh, let's jump in because I, I really want to talk about this book with you. Okay, so yes. for people who are either not interested in tracking down the book and they just want to <laughs> listen or who can't find it, Brenna, what is Z for Zachariah about? Okay, so a little bit of context first. It's actually a posthumously published novel, which I didn't realize until I started I reading about it afterwards yeah so um the author actually died in 1973 and i think this is important was it due to cancer or nuclear war (laughs) i don't know that part but he hadn't finished this book when he died and his wife and daughter finished the manuscript from his notes Oh, that is fascinating. It is fascinating because the 16-year-old girl perspective here is so, so well done. Yes. It's so good. It never feels like a John Green, I'm an old man pretending to be a teenage girl. Can we just pause to say, I love how much I have poisoned you again. <laughs> it's not like I didn't know he had problems before. I was just better able to enjoy my life, Joe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I've, I'm fascinated by the fact that there were two women involved in the revisions of this book. I can feel it, yeah. So uh, the central, like, the central threat, the central fulcrum of the book is a young woman's profound fear of a man, and <laughs> particularly her fear of sexual assault, but her fear of being, like, held captive by a man. And oh, the whole time I was reading that, I was like, wow, this dude really gets women. And then I found out that his wife and mostly his daughter had finished the book after he died. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, this story checks there out. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. she would have been uh, in her early 30s, I guess, when he died. Hmm. So that's just interesting context. The story itself is the story of 16-year-old Anne Burden. And it's a first-person diary style. So we get big gaps in between when we get updates on what's going on as she's not able to write for various uh, reasons, which I really liked because it helped to build the tension. You'd be like, you'd finish reading on like August 4th and then you'd open it again and it'd be August 16th and you'd be like, oh, what's, what happened? Are you okay? <laughs> oh gosh, why has <laughs> she writing? not written? <laughs> so Anne has survived what appears to have been some kind of nuclear war situation. And she doesn't know why. Nobody knows why. Um, But this valley that she lives in seems to have been spared fallout for whatever reason. Everywhere around this valley is completely unsafe. She stays within the confines of the valley. But because her father uh, was a farmer, she has access to the farmland. She has access to cows and chickens. And there is one store within the valley that has some supplies left over. It's been about a year since everything went south so she still has access to things like sugar uh, and flour that haven't spoiled but it is just her her father and mother had gone out looking for additional help Uh, her brother tagged along with them unbeknownst to her and so she's left completely on her own and she's really kind of handling it yeah she's totally surviving she's totally surviving she keeps a garden she you know she puts the milk and what little meat she has in cold storage she's got it together until Mm-hmm. One day, she realizes she's because it's a valley, she can go up to higher ridges to look for greens or to hunt, and she can find she can see farther than you would expect. And when she's in this area looking, she realizes there's a man who has entered the valley. 
So this man is, he's wearing this uh, radiation proof suit and he's doing all these tests. And then sort of all of a sudden he takes off the suit. He's like celebrating and he jumps in some water. And she's like, hmm, that water, there's nothing alive in that water. <laughs> that water is radioactive. That water is radioactive. So everything in the valley has been protected except for there's basically two streams that meet in a pond. And one of the streams is fine um, and has fish and stuff in it. And the other stream is being fed from a water source outside of the valley. And it is not fine. It is radioactive. So the guy who we will eventually learn is named John Loomis, gives himself radiation sickness by bathing in this pond, and she helps him back to life. Like she nurses him through his radiation sickness, and they come to like an easy peace with each other. She does literally all of the work. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'd forgotten how aggravating that was to read because she's trying to be so accommodating to this person. Because she's been so lonely, right? Yes. You know, she's a 16-year-old girl. She is surviving, but at the same time, she didn't think she was ever going to see another living person. No. So even though she's very wary of him when he first comes in, when he gets sick, she realizes, okay, you know what? I can either let this man die or I can try to save his life and we can figure out a way to live together. And for a while, it really works because... Mostly because he's incapacitated, so he can't be evil. <laughs> yeah, he's recovering. And while he's recovering, she learns that he's got some kind of traumatic past involving someone named Edward that Mm -hmm. he keeps whispering about. Mm -hmm. And he would never willingly divulge any of this information, but Mm -hmm. she learns it because he goes through, if you've ever watched Chernobyl, you know what radiation sickness looks like. And he's going through the fever cycles. And when he's in his fever cycles, he is delirious. Um, He hallucinates. He sort of tells on himself about his own past. And he gets really scared of being alone. So she ends up spending like all of this time basically trapped in her own house with him, scared to leave him because she doesn't want him to panic. Uh, And then when he comes to, he's like, what, you didn't plant the fields? And I'm like, I'm sorry. Did you? (laughs) Why are you? Why are you the worst? Yeah, she's literally changing his bed sheets. She's mm-hmm. spoon feeding him. Mm-hmm. She, you know, is also out there working during the day to make sure that the cow gets milk. Mm-hmm. And she has to do all of this in like 15 minute blitzes because she can't leave his side. So she has to like run, milk the cow, run back before he can like wake up and wonder where she is because he freaks out when he's alone. Yeah. She's literally been his survival and he wakes up and he's like, bunch of stuff you didn't do <laughs> like yeah. he, mm, i don't like you yeah so as he as he starts to recover he starts to make increasingly more rigorous demands on what she does. so she hasn't planted certain things because like she hasn't planted wheat because she doesn't have a mill so mm-hmm. so she's like well there's no reason to do this and then he's basically like well you're dumb you should do this because if not in a few years blah 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 is gonna run out at the general store yeah He's a chemist, so his concern is that it doesn't matter that we can't mill the flour. We could figure out how to mill the flour, but if you don't plant the wheat, then wheat as a species is going to die out, and we won't have wheat anymore. And it's like, you're expecting a 16-year-old girl who is trying to just keep herself alive to have a level of forward planning that is unrealistic, sir. Yeah, and it's worth noting that she is doing well, but she almost literally died during the winter because she could not keep herself warm and she didn't have enough food. So it's not that she isn't planning, but also she has had to figure so many things out and again. She is 16 years old. And all by herself. And like she's in complete survival mode, even in the summer. Like 
this whole book, I think, takes place over the spring and summer. And so we see her at a time of year when she is not suffering because she has her garden. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, she's not starving because she has her garden. But, like, his level of patience with her is basically non-existent, again, after she has nursed him back to health. And that's when we start to see a change in his personality. So... Mm -hmm. When he's sick, we have questions because he keeps talking about this Edward person and Anne slowly pieces together that Edward had tried to take the radiation suit to go and find his wife and in a fit of whether it's just like fear of being alone himself or the fact that he's just clearly very controlling or whatever, he shoots Edward to get the suit back. So the suit has been repaired um, from two bullet holes. So she's sort of pieced together that maybe he's a little bit dangerous anyway. And then as he recovers and as he gains his mobility back, because his legs have atrophied from being so sick, as he recovers, he becomes more and more threatening, more and more demanding until at one point she asks him if he's married and he decides to take that as like his in that she wants to be with him. And one of the things that I think the novel does really well is that Anne has thought about that, right? Like. She's 16, and she's looking down the barrel of never having a marriage and kids at a time when that is clearly what was intended for her in the life that she grew up in. And there are moments where she thinks about, like, you know, she thinks about the fact that he's so much older than her, and she thinks about, you know, but could, as I get a little bit older, you know, could he see me in that way? Like, she has all these thoughts while he's sick. And then when she asks him if he's married, he becomes extremely aggressive. He grabs her, and he, like, won't let go. Um, he's like, I hoped you would ask me that, which is probably one of the creepiest lines I've ever read. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then it escalates until he he attempts to sexually assault her. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. When she's asleep. When she's asleep. And so she flees and she goes to live in a cave, um, which she had already sort of staked out as a safe second place to go to. So she has some food supplies. When he first arrived, she didn't know whether he was going to be safe or not. So she had actually moved a lot of supplies into the cave. She'd been slowly moving things back, but she does have a small store of supplies there. And uh, they have... I would say, an uneasy truce for a while where she agrees to come back and keep tending to the farm. Keep doing everything. Keep doing literally everything because he literally doesn't do anything. And she will live in the cave, which he doesn't know how to get to because he's not mobile enough yet. But he starts to try to use her dog to track her down. She increasingly has a smaller and smaller sphere where she can move and not be detected by him. You really get this sense of a predator-prey relationship in the book. It's really well done and very, very upsetting to read. Mm -hmm. Well, he's also taking things away from her. Yes! So he starts to withhold things. So she goes to use the tractor one day and she can't find the keys. And he says, well, you know, I haven't decided whether or not I'm going to let you use that anymore. To feed me. Yeah. Sorry. And then he takes the keys to the general store. So she no longer has access to those other things. And it takes her a little while, but she eventually realizes that he's not actually trying to hurt her or kill her. He mm-hmm. wants to imprison her. And this yeah. culminates at a time where he actually tries to shoot her in the leg. And she yeah. thinks that he's a bad shot. And it's not until she's run away and she's cowering in this cave that she realizes he actually just wanted to maim her yeah. so that he could lock her up. And then at that point, she would be his. And yeah. it is so horrifying. It's so horrifying. It's so well done. The slow and then all at once way she realizes what he's really intending because mm-hmm. we realize it as readers first and we want her to get it and then when she does get it we're like oh i'm so sorry that you understand now yeah 
it was some in some ways better for you when you didn't. Well, and she has no one to talk to, right? No. I mean, she has this diary, so technically she's confiding in it and therefore us. Mm -hmm. But really, it's her versus him, and it's this battle for this valley, which is the only home that she's ever really known. Mm -hmm. And he's taking everything away from her, and she's feeling increasingly less safe. And it comes to the point where she has to make a decision. And I, I'm not going to lie. I kept hoping that she was going to say, really I've got this gun him. in this cave. I'm going to shoot this guy. I really wish she had killed him. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Everything basically comes to a fever pitch, literally, around two things. The shot that he puts in her leg becomes infected. And so she's having these weird dreams. But they're dreams that involve her mother and her brother. Uh, and she begins to think that they might be visions of another possible valley another valley like this one somewhere else so it gives her the idea that maybe the best thing to do is to try to steal his radiation suit and escape yep. the thing that really pushes her over the edge to actually do it is that he does use pharaoh to track her down that's the dog that's the dog sorry and there's an awful scene where the dog Ugh. has like this moment of joy and recognition when he finds her again and he has to swim across the dead creek the radioactive creek in order to get to her and he dies yeah, she has lured him in because she recognizes that yeah. as long as the dog is alive, then Loomis will always, always be able, be able, to, able find to find her. her. It's so awful. She has to kill the only friend she has. Yes, because he's a dog and he can't not track her. He can't not find her. And it's awful. It's an awful scene. And then she takes him back mm -hmm. to the cave so that he can die peacefully. And it's awful. And that's <laughs> it. That's when she's like, well, there's nothing here for me anymore. It's just a creepy man. <laughs> yep. She lures him out of the house with a note. I love it. It's so simple. It's and so simple so and easy. so good. And, and it preys on him, it. right? Like it preys on his desire to be desired by her, yeah. which I love as a technique. And she steals the radioactive suit. And then she she waits for him. That whole scene was very tense too. I was like, you don't need to talk to him. You can just go, just go, yeah, just, you go, can just, go, go. just go, just go, just go. No, she literally puts on the suit. She packs everything up. She wheels herself to the edge of the valley. And then she goes back and talks to him, mm -hmm. and he is threatening to shoot her, which we know he's already done to someone before. Mm -hmm. And he's begging her not to leave, and she accuses him in that moment of Edward's murder, and it's like enough to put him on a back foot. Like he's like, oh, what? Why do you know about that? You're not supposed to know about that. And it's like, it's enough for him to not shoot her. And it's the only thing that saves her life. It's the only thing that saves her life. And he gets this moment of redemption question mark because yeah. he tells her that when he was walking, he saw birds once circling to the west. And so she takes his advice and she heads west in the radiation suit, hoping that one day she will find another green horizon. That's and the where book it ends. ends ambiguously. <laughs> we have no idea whether she survives or ever finds anybody. We have no idea what happens to him. We have no idea if he learns how to do literally any work at all. <laughs> I mean, I like to think that he had all these grand ambitions and then something just goes horribly wrong and he can't figure it out and then he just dies in that valley. <laughs> I hope so. God, I hope he dies in the valley. Okay, so I feel like we have to talk about this ending because it is simultaneously super nihilistic and mm -hmm. yet also very uplifting. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for me because the entire book is dedicated to her describing this idyllic life in the valley. And it sounds gorgeous and it sounds beautiful and it's everything that she's ever known. And the book ends with her willingly giving it up because she is too good a person to murder another person. 
And there's something so powerful about yeah. that. And yet it's also incredibly frustrating as a modern reader. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a Cold War novel in so many ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Obviously, Fear of Nuclear Holocaust was like a thing. Yep. The whole duck and cover, just like, man, can you imagine yeah. if we believed that we could like protect ourselves by getting under school desks now? Like, what a, what a simpler time. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like a primitive version of all of the active shooter drills oh, that we God. teach kids to do. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Before we do, can I just say there's a really great podcast out and it's all from the perspective of kids who have been in active shooting drills, like not kids who have been actively shot at, but it's about the psyche of like what those drills, those constant drills do to kids. No, absolutely not. I <laughs> don't want to hear that. I was listening to it. It was one of those, you know how sometimes you get like a surprise podcast in your feed because somebody's sponsoring right. its connection or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Dev comes downstairs and I'm just like doing the dishes after after Groot's gone to bed, like weeping. And Dev's like, are you um okay? And I was like, no, I accidentally listened to this. And now I'm never letting our child leave the house again. Basically. Wow. Oh, it's anyway, it was all about how like we have absolutely no research on the psychological impact of what those drills do. Oh, I can only imagine bad things. Bad things. Not good things. Just terrible things. Anyway, so yes, <laughs> very similar. With that said, Anne is, is surprisingly well adapted. She like, is mentally. really well adapted. And part of it, I think, is she's situated as this farm girl. She has a sense of faith, a certain amount of faith, but not... my One of my problems with the film adaptation is they turn that faith into sort of like a religious... It's a very direct she has faith and now she has religion in the film. Yes, exactly. And I, it's it's a little aggressive for me in terms of mm -hmm. flattening the subtleties of what the book is doing. Yes. But so she has this this sense of purpose and the sense of moving forward in the book, but also we end up with this really great contrast between this guy who represents science and like mm -hmm. thinks he knows everything and ultimately wants control, right? Yep. And we're definitely this is 1974, we're in a moment where faith in science was not unshakable, right? We're not talking about 1950s, like everything's going to be great because of atomic energy. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, actually, we're now learning about what it looks like when, you know, we're now, we've, we finally learned about the truth of the Holocaust. We finally learned about the truth of Hiroshima. We actually know what science does what these kinds of extensions of the powers of science, because the book is both about nuclear war and nerve gas, right? Which I think yeah. is an important one-two hit. We know about science plus weaponry and like what it can do. And so there's this sense in the book of like, he's this corrupting, controlling force that wants to take a situation that has leveled out into maybe not like a happy ending, but a kind of peace and destroy it for his own ends, right? Well, <sighs> It's that and also this idea that in certain hands, you're going to get one outcome. And yep. then if you give those same tools to somebody else, somebody more controlling, someone entitled, someone who thinks that they're always right, it men. can be wielded men. and used. Men. 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 <laughs> the Patriot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a book filled with dichotomies right yeah. so it's it's man versus girl or woman mm -hmm. and it's city dweller versus country it's science and technology and progress versus 
conscience almost, right? Like it's the mm-hmm. separation of science and technology and progress from conscience. Because she's not, she's not a Luddite. Like when he teaches no, her how to use... No, she's not a country use, bumpkin. When he teaches her how to like get the gas to flow without electricity, she's thrilled, right? Like yeah. when he teaches her how to get the tractor going, she's thrilled. She understands that these kinds of things can help her in her life. But he has this sense of science completely divorced from like ethics or like conscious mm-hmm. conscience and it's like that's what's scary right it's the way that it only works to service his will as yes. opposed to some sort of larger greater good well and that's that's what makes this book so terrifying you can look at it on the surface and say it's about a man a predatory man going after this young girl mm-hmm. that's the simple way of looking at it The more complex, rich, nuanced way of looking at this is that it is someone who thinks that they are morally superior, who thinks that they can just come Mm -hmm. in and bulldoze over everything and make it fall prey to their will. Like, he comes into the valley, he sees that it's something that he can take, he sees an adversary that he wants to own. It's not even that he's like, oh, here's this girl. I want to have sex with her. He literally wants to own her. Mm-hmm. He wants to control her body. Yeah. Yes. And he thinks he's entitled to it because he is a man who is a man of science. And we see this way in which he he wants that control first in the way he interacts with Pharaoh, right? So Pharaoh has never in his life been tied up. He's a farm dog in a valley with no other people. Pharaoh can do what Pharaoh wants to do. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that he does, and yes, it's part of being able to track down Anne, but it's also indicative oh, it's of so his. Much more. It, yeah. yeah, it's indicative of his control that he ties up Pharaoh. He like he makes a collar from a belt, and he makes a lead from an old extension cord, mm-hmm. so that Pharaoh can't chew through it to escape. And the symbolism of using a belt to yes. tie something up, like. It's not lost on me. No, and also, if I'm not mistaken, it's the extension cord from her her mother's vacuum cleaner too, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. this use of like this domesticity to like tether Pharaoh. And she knows, like she watches him do this and she's like, oh, oh, that's me. Like that's what he wants to do with me. Yeah. Oh, like my breath catches in my throat. Uh, Like it's uh, so, listeners, you can't, like if you haven't, oh my, it's so well done. Like (laughs) I can't tell you enough how well done it is. And like the other thing that's happening, metaphorically speaking, is um, so the book is called Zed for Zachariah. Oh yeah, yeah. We should probably address it. Like (laughs) why is this book called this? So she, um, amongst her few books, this is another transition, this is another change from the, the book to the film that I don't like. So one of the things is that Anne wants to be a school teacher. She loves books. She loves reading, but she has access to very few of them. And one of the sort of little tragedies that's going on for her is that all of the books that she used to read, she relied on the library. <laughs> a girl after our own heart. Mm-hmm. And the library is now in the, radi- in the radiation zone. So she can't go and get books um, like she used to. So she's limited to the few books that her parents have. And even like at one point she goes looking or she remembers going looking at the general store, the family that owns the general store, and they literally own two magazines. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So there's like no new reading material. And she, you know, one of the things she says to him is like, well, you know, if you were to put on your radiation suit to go and get the technical manuals at the library, like maybe you could bring me back some books. And he's like, no. Yeah. He's like, that would be a waste of time. I'm like, wouldn't it be a waste of time to not do it? You're already in the suit and you're already at the library. <laughs> She's asking for a book. A book. It's not going to add that much. Like, why are you like this? Ugh. Anyway, so. Okay, but Zed for Zachariah. Yeah, right. Zed for Zachariah. <laughs> so, 
So she has this picture book and it's called A is for Adam and it's like a child's sort of biblical alphabet book. And so if A is for Adam, he's the first man. Z is for Zachariah, he's the last man. And so she conceives of herself as this Zachariah figure, but she's not Mm -hmm. because A is for Adam becomes John Loomis and she becomes Eve, right? She's the only option for repopulating the world as far as he is concerned. And I read a really interesting contemporary review from the Times Literary Supplement that suggested that the triumph of the book, why we like the ending, even though, as Joe pointed out, it is pretty nihilistic, is that she's Eve refusing. Like she's Eve refusing to have to live that story over again because the Eve story, I don't know if y'all noticed, doesn't work out well for the women. Not so much. And it's her saying like, nope, nope, would rather be irradiated. Thank you very much. Well, I lamented the fact that she ends up having to leave her home. Well, it's literally an Eden, right? It's literally an Edenic paradise. It is, yeah. Which is hilarious because really most of the book is not at all steeped in religion. Mm -mm. And yet there are all of these parable Mm -hmm. elements where you can clearly see the connection to it. Mm -hmm. But there's something, it's not just empowering that this girl ultimately decides, you know what, I will make my own fate. I will steal from this man this man of science, I will take his machine and I will use it for my own purposes and those purposes will be good. And that that is super mm-hmm. empowering. Mm-hmm. But it is fascinating that she ultimately decides that she will also leave her Eden in search of something else. Because yes. as much as I would have liked the idea that she kills John Loomis and she stays in that valley where it is safe and she will be protected and she can thrive, there's these nefarious hints throughout the entire book. Some of them planted by him but others also planted by herself Mm -hmm. that this Eden will only last for so long. Yeah. It looks great now, but in three to four years, like the cow is already starting to go dry. Mm -hmm. Eventually she will run out of petrol to run the tractor. She may have wheat to process, but she probably won't ever have a mill. Yeah. So there's all of these suggestions that- The sugar's going to spoil. Yeah. And like, yes, she could process beets for beet sugar, but like how- all the time yeah yeah (laughs) so i love this idea that she has to recognize you know what this place is great but it's not forever and i need to go out and find something else that will work for me yeah yeah and she's so brave at the end like she's so brave i love it because you spend the whole book she is like a prey animal the whole book and then at the end she faces him down and she's just like nope this is what i'm doing Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel false. No, not in the way all. that sometimes it does, <laughs> where women claim agency by adopting patriarchal tools and this kind of stuff. Because she doesn't. She survives based on her smarts and yes. her words. Yes. She takes the power and just leaves him. Yes, and she uses the fact that he, his basic one weakness is that he wants her, right? Like his desire to control her and to have that for himself is a massive weakness for him. Mm -hmm. And she uses that to her advantage. Like I think Joe and I have given away before that we really love it when cleverness and smarts wins out. Yeah. And I like it in this case because he thinks he's the smartest. Well, I was going to say he thinks he's the smartest man on earth. He's the only man on earth. Um, But he thinks he's brilliant, right? Like he has always believed himself to be brilliant. And he has always been treated as someone who is brilliant. And she outwits him. And it's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't feel topical at all. (laughs) 
So, Brenna, maybe at this point we should turn to the film sure. and talk about just how different this movie actually is. I didn't see anyone alive for over a year. My dad told us he can't leave the valley. As long as we stay here, we'd be protected. crazy this is still here why are you doing the work my hand can't drive this ran out of gas pumps don't run without electricity oh, you can get it to work manually hey it worked really means something that you think in long term for us i want things to be good between us it's okay because we got time Caleb. Okay, so the film is from 2015, so it took a very long time to bring this to the big screen. Mm -hmm. And this comes from director Craig Zobel. I thought that we had done another text by him, but it turns out that I've just watched a number of his other films. Not great for this podcast, but if anybody wants a really compellingly tense thriller with lots of icky morals he directed a great film called compliance that is just outstanding did he also direct that movie that didn't get released because of yes okay yeah so he also directed a movie called the hunt which was meant to come out earlier this year and it was shelved in the wake of one of the shootings in the u.s interestingly enough it purported to show liberals hunting conservatives for sport and surprisingly <laughs> enough it earned the ire of president trump I'm interested all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that film ever sees the light of day. A lot of people speculate that it'll just show up on VOD one day in the, you know, a couple of years or something like that. Right. Because it's got a pretty good cast, I think. Isn't Hilary Swank in that? And like... Yep. Yeah. Yep. And one of the ladies from Glow. Mm. In any case. So we've got writer Nisar Modi, and interestingly enough, Brenna, we have three actors in our cast. So we have Loomis, who is played by British actor Chiwetel Ejiofor. We've got Margot Robbie, Australian, playing Anne. And then we've got Chris Pine playing a new character named Caleb. So one of the big distinctions that people will notice... <laughs> Brenna. Sorry. <laughs> One of the big things that people will notice if you've managed to track down the book or if you just listen to our plot description from the book, the film takes a very different approach. So instead of just having the face-off be against Loomis and Anne, the film introduces a third person about midway through. So Loomis is still controlling. He's still a scientist. He's a man of science. And at a certain point, it seems like he and Anne are getting along very, very well. So he's still very opinionated. He still wants her to do certain types of things. But they're actually starting to develop feelings for each other, and things are going reasonably well. They're the same age also. That's important. They've way aged up. Yes, they've, they've aged up Anne. So Margot Robbie was 24 when she filmed this. Yeah. 
as opposed to the 16-year-old character that she is in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. So then we suddenly get the introduction of Caleb. And it's been hinted at that there's somebody else in the valley because things are happening like an egg goes missing one day. or mm-hmm. She sees someone watching her play organ and she assumes that it's John, but it, John's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, so Caleb has been lurking. Interestingly enough, he's not really given too, too much of a backstory, but more or less what ends up happening is that instead of having a conflict between a man and a girl, we end up having a confrontational love triangle where Anne and Loomis were kind of on the road to settling down together as Mm -hmm. the last man and the last woman. And then Caleb comes in and he throws a wrench into the plans. He's a little bit younger than John. He's super sexy because he's played by Chris Pine. (laughs) He also loves Jesus, but she also loves Jesus. Yes. Yes. That is a big factor. So they seem to be more simpatico, but there's also something mildly threatening about Caleb, or Caleb brings out something mildly threatening in Loomis. Mm -hmm. And the two men have a slightly confrontational, but it's kind of passive-aggressive relationship. And they, they set to work on something that is hinted at in the book, but never really developed, which is that they are going to rebuild a generator using a water wheel. And things come to a head when one day Loomis and Caleb are working on the water reel. They finally get it to work and then Caleb starts to slip and it seems like he's going to be fine. And then he slips again and we just get this image of Loomis looking at him like, will he save him or will he not? And then we cut back and Loomis... More or less, Loomis reveals to Anne that Caleb has left, and I'm putting left in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. the valley, and... Took the radiation suit with him, so they are also both trapped now in the valley forever. Yeah, and Anne is very despondent. She has actually had a bit of a tryst with Caleb, so one night when John went to sleep angry, she ended up hooking up with Caleb. Literally the night before that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And the film also ends ambiguously by suggesting that it's unclear how Anne and Loomis will move forward from the mm-hmm. stage, whether or not they even kind of like or trust each other, but mm-hmm. also they have no other options because they are now both stuck here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with this movie. It's perfectly interesting. I didn't mm-hmm. think that they spent enough time... For a movie that's only about three people, I felt like I, I never got enough development in the characters to really understand their motivations. But I think in some ways that was intentional. I'm not sure it always worked for me. But I liked the film. But it's not an adaptation of the book. <laughs> no. Like, it's just not. I remember the first time I saw this, because I've seen this film before as well. I think I may have actually watched it the first time I read the book, just because I was intrigued by the idea of an adaptation. It feels like the writer Nisar Modi doesn't quite trust that a two-person character drama is going to be interesting enough. And I think there's also a deliberate studio intention to say, why have two people when you could have a love triangle? Yeah, why not have a hot people love triangle? Yeah, these three are incredibly attractive like this is a very hot cast and there's a couple of different fun sort of scenes where they're all trying to figure each other out like they go for a late night swim and you know there's maybe stuff happening under the water and suspicions are getting rise and it could for a hot second be a lifetime film yeah it really could it really could. And I think there are some tonal shifts in it that don't always 100% work. But overall, I liked that it was brave enough to be ambiguous. 
Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about how too many of the adaptations we watch don't leave space for ambiguity. So I have to give credit to the filmmakers for that. Well, and even the fact that the ending does obviously involve a murder of sorts, yes. but it doesn't involve John shooting no. Caleb or or even Anne going into hysterics and having a big shouting match or something. This no. is a very quiet film. extremely film. quiet film. I like a quiet film. Yeah. But there are so many changes from the original text. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the text itself comes with name recognition or anything that I don't understand why it bothered to be an adaptation. You know what I mean? This is a very odd decision, yeah. Because when I tell people, you know, I told people this week, hey, we're covering Zed for Zachariah on the podcast. And people said, I've literally never heard of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people never heard of the film either. No, when you tell no, them who's in it, they're, they're often very surprised. But yeah. uh, this is a small film. It had a $7.5 million budget, but it only grossed $381,000. So no one has seen this movie. And like, when I was reading up about the film, I read a lot of comparisons to a 1959 movie called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Have you ever seen mm. that movie, Joe? I have not. I have not either, obviously. When would I have seen a movie? But (laughs) it is so much more like the plot of this movie that this movie is pretty clearly an adaptation of of this film. How interesting. Yeah. So The World, the Flesh, and the Devil is about – it's a three-person film. It's got Harry Belafonte – Okay. At sort of his career peak. And he's he plays this mine inspector who gets trapped in a nuclear war. He gets trapped underground. When he right. finally digs himself out, he's the only surviving man. He's a oh, scientist. Wait. This does sound familiar. Uh-huh. And he makes his way to New York City where he figures out how to reestablish components of the city's electrical grid. Hmm. And he finds a one lone survivor there, a woman, a white woman in her 20s. And they become friends and then a little bit something more but he's got all these hang-ups about 1950s america and the racial divide that he can't get past and then this third survivor shows up and he's got questionable motives but he seems to really be interested in the woman and so he like ralph the main character harry belafonte's character like walks away like it's the same movie (laughs) hmm Yeah. Do we want to maybe have a quick conversation about the racial implications of this film? Yes, please. I don't think it's handled well. Because there's a very deliberate decision. Like, the characters in the book are both white. Mm -hmm. Well, presumably white. Race is not really addressed except to say that Anne often describes Loomis as pale. Yes. Because she herself is quite tanned because she is spending a lot of time outside. Yes. Whereas, obviously, anybody who has seen Ejiofor knows that he is very much a black man. Mm -hmm. And Margot Robbie is Australian white, and Chris Pine is American white. So there's something mildly uncomfortable about the connotations of a jealous black man who feels threatened when a white man tries to take his lady I found it very uncomfortable and it's not dealt with in the film. There's one moment where he says to her, well, you two can go off and just be white people together. And it's not... It lands with a thud. It lands with a thud. There are... The filmmakers do not seem to be sensitive to a history of iconography in American culture that presents black men as sexual aggressors Mm -hmm. and white women as sexual victims in a way that has been used to demonize black men for literally 
in entire pop culture history of America. And so there are some scenes. There's a scene where he gets drunk and he grabs her and puts her up against the wall. And I was like, so I was watching in bed and I was like physically recoiling like to the other side of the bed, trying to get Mm -hmm. away from the movie during that scene. So on the one hand, like it's very uncomfortable and it does uncomfortable well. But on the other hand, there's all these other sort of subconscious cultural layers there that never get unpacked by the film and so you're left wondering like does the filmmaker want me to see him as an aggressive black Mm -hmm. man or is the film asking me to question that and i don't think it's the latter and i found that really uncomfortable it's very unusual isn't it because at the end of the day like whenever i watch this film i always get a slightly nefarious vibe from caleb the yes well he's the one who says when they're hunting turkeys he's the one who turns to Loomis. Uh, Loomis and says, whichever one of us bags the turkey gets Anne. Like, he says that. Yeah. And the way it's framed is that, you know, Loomis is pointing a gun and Caleb is directly behind him and it looks like he might shoot him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So there's all these suggestions that Caleb is the dangerous one. But then we're also presented with scenes of domestic violence by Loomis. And then, of course, he is ultimately the one who ends up killing Caleb, which does reflect back to the Loomis that we know of the book. But because the film has divided the men into two characters, Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, it's kind of saying, hey, Anne, neither of these guys are good. Yeah. And I love the film for doubling down on this idea that at the end of the day, she would have been stuck with one of them. And really, she probably would be better off with neither. Yes, yes. But there's uncomfortable moments in this film, and that does make the film challenging to watch in parts, and it really makes that ending dark. Yes, it does. Which it is really funny does. because like, the end of the film is this gorgeous shot of her just slowly pushing a glass off a table, <laughs> and you're thinking, this is her life now. Yeah, I struggle with a lot of the visual imagery in the film. For all the reasons that I've articulated, and I think it took away from my ability to engage with the characters fully, mm-hmm. because I just really wanted them to address what they were setting up visually, and they never did, and not in a good ambiguous way, in a, like, I'm not sure they knew how to handle it, so they just didn't kind of way. Yeah. And it's a shame because it undercuts what is otherwise a really interesting character study without enough character detail if that makes sense i don't know how to describe how i feel about the film because i think i could have liked it sooner if i had not read the book first i think i would have been more all in but i still think that these issues particularly around this race and gender piece would have lingered regardless Mm -hmm. yeah it's a bit disappointing in some of those regards isn't Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. yeah it is Particularly, I mean, I took note of two specific things, because in the book, we talked a little bit about how Anne has fantasies of John before he's recovered, and she envisions a future where they might get married, and they might have kids, and wouldn't that be nice? And it's only for a brief moment, but then I think it nicely contrasts the reality when he ends up making that move. Yeah. And the film doesn't do that, because of course, there's there's no voiceover in the film Mm -hmm. so we're not really privy to Anne's interior thoughts as Mm -hmm. a result but I did like the fact that in the start of the film she's very much wearing the men's clothes from the general store you know ill-fitting baggy jeans and flannels and she you know she looks like she doesn't care Mm -hmm. and then 
when the men start to arrive, you literally never see her in pants again. No, she you don't. only dresses in dresses. It's a very subtle visual cue to suggest that she is blossoming mm-hmm. sexually and she is interested in how she looks, which is something that does happen in the book. Yes. I like that, you know, without having to say, I'm going to wear dresses because I want to, you know, attract these men. Yes. It's just well done. And then one other really fun thing that I liked is we see them have breakfast several times. And they each, as people do, they tend to sit in the same seat. And John Loomis sits at the head of the table. And then the morning after Anne sleeps with Caleb, they switch seats. And it's just a really, again, a subtle visual cue to suggest that the power imbalance has been upset because she sits at the head of the table. Yes. And it connotes that she is now the one in control. Like she will be the one who is deciding which of these men she will end up with. And it's that moment when Loomis decides that he has to make his move against Caleb because he's afraid of losing her. Yeah. So it's stuff like that where I thought, oh, okay, well, Craig Zobel is is surprisingly adept at staging some of these stuff. There's some really neat subtlety. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And yeah. And the film looks gorgeous. It shot it in does. New Zealand. Yeah. So. It looks very pretty. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. They went with uh, West Virginia as the American setting. Like, if they're anywhere, they're in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. In Zed for Zachariah, the book, they never, ever specify where they are located. But I definitely read it as being set in Appalachia. So I was like, oh, yes. okay. I like that. Yeah, because we're told that John has walked from New York, right? Yes. Yeah. That's from Ithaca. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Any other thoughts about the film or the book? No, I'm ready for some YA bingo if you are. Oh, except to say, we didn't actually talk about this. The book is YA. Definitely YA. The film is absolutely not YA. No, absolutely Mm -hmm. not. Yeah, I I raised that at the end of last week. Yeah, (laughs) we didn't talk about it. But yeah, in fact, the book is so YA that it was actually first serialized in a UK teen magazine called Jackie. Really? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. Which is actually a magazine that my nan used to buy me. Oh. Yeah, I know. And then the film is like, everybody is 25 and they're just having all kinds of sex. That yeah. is not a YA anymore. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, let's do some YA bingo. YA bingo! Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so here's mine. Okay. Perfect date. Mm-hmm. In the film, I really love what I presume is the birthday dinner, but they never say it's the birthday dinner from the book when Anne and Loomis dance together and stuff and it's really sweet and she kind of propositions him and he's like no no we have time and it's like this moment where you're like oh maybe he's actually gonna be like right decent he's not gonna be a terrible person he's not gonna be a terrible person and that's true also of the birthday dinner in the book Mm -hmm. I really liked the way it was set up because it's all from Anne's perspective and she is still full of sort of schoolgirlish dreams about what this man is going to mean for her life so yeah I've got perfect date. Uh, dystopia, obviously. Obviously. Sexual awakening, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dead parents. Oh, yeah. Irradiated parents. Oh, too soon. <laughs> um, abuse, unfortunately. Domestic violence in both uh, yeah. book and film. And obviously, love triangle for the film. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think that probably covers most of it unless we want to do a little bit of gaslighting because loomis is kind of oh in the book for sure you're right right. i don't think he's two steps ahead enough in the film version but in the book absolutely yeah yeah 
Yeah, I think that's maybe it. There's a temptation to suggest convenient expertise because they do seem to be able to handle that farm equipment like nobody's <laughs> business. But at the same time, it's made very obvious in the book that Anne has learned everything from her father. Like she yeah. has paid attention because she is a person who lives on a farm and it's expected of her. One of the things I love in the book is how she's always going back to being like, you know, before nuclear holocaust happened, I hated doing the farm chores. <laughs> I just, just wanted to educate kids. And now I don't mind spending an honest day. <laughs> Oh, dear. Yep. Poor Anne. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, unfortunately, not a bingo this week. No. We had been having a good run, though, Joe, so I think we should uh, we should just take the win from last week and run with it. Fair enough. I'll <laughs> allow it. All right, folks. So um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can. Uh, you can find us at hashtag HKHSpod on the Twitters. Joe, where do they find you if they want to just talk to you about Margot Robbie? just me yes mm -hmm. and i would love to talk about margot robbie <laughs> i am at to be still on my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray and that's gray with an a um and looking ahead to our next few episodes we've got a couple of minisodes coming at you we'll be taking a look at sex education so if you haven't caught up on your sex education viewing you should do that and we've got a march 2020 forecast coming up in the near future as well and mm -hmm. then our next quote, unquote, regular sewed <laughs> is, oh, P.S. I Still Love You, which is the sequel to To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I'm so excited. And we're going to have a special guest for that episode, but we're going to keep you waiting to find out who that is. Yes. As long as we can figure out how to get her on mic, we're going to have her on. Right. Yes. Technical difficulties. Please stand by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, get watching Sex Education. Get reading P.S. I Still Love You. And until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. <laughs>